We're going to be rejoining our sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. We're looking at chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, so only about 9 verses of chapter 7. This is called a roadmap for broad Christians, because if you remember, the Corinthians uh, that Paul is writing to were raw, meaning they were immature spiritually, and they were worldly. The first quarter of this letter was addressing the topic of worldliness, so they are raw Christians, and Paul is giving them some instructions. We're going to be looking at chapter 7, 1 through 9, that's on page 955. If you've got an ESV Pew Bible, otherwise just 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 through 9. Let's go to the Lord and pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we come in faith, we come as your church, we come wanting to know you better, we come wanting to know your word better, so Father, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. Enable us to see the true meaning of this passage as it was originally delivered to the Corinthians, and also, Lord, help us to see your instruction for us today as we draw out the biblical principles that are timeless. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Leaf blowers were invented in the late 1950s, 1960s, depending on who you check for your sources, it's debatable when they were first invented. But the US, first U.S.-produced gas-powered backpack was 1971. And then this was followed not too long after that. The first handheld model was 1978 in the United States. Now, it was this handheld model that attracted the average homeowner. So in the 1980s, leaf blower sales boomed. They were all over the place. But not everyone liked them. Many people couldn't stand leaf blowers. These leaf blower naysayers ignored all the positives about these machines, and instead they complained that they were too noisy and that the gas-powered machines belched out this stinky exhaust and caused pollution. Some had such a negative view of leaf blowers that they petitioned their local governments and some municipalities began regulating and even banning leaf blowers. In fact, in 1998, Los Angeles banned the use of leaf blowers from 500 feet around any residence. Still today, it seems like there are two camps. People either see leaf blowers in a positive light, and they own them and they use them, or they see leaf blowers in a negative light. There's something to be avoided, and they're, they're unnecessary, even to be regulated or banned. Up to this point in 1 Corinthians, Paul has described several forms of sexual immorality. There was a man sleeping with his stepmother. There was adultery, homosexuality, prostitution. And if that's all we spend our time on, and that's what the Bible addressed, but if that's all we look at, then we can understand how sexuality could be taken as something negative. And this is, seems to be where the raw believers ended up, at least some of them. Some of them were taking the view that it was necessary to maintain abstinence within marriage. Now, marriage is where God intends sexuality to be practiced and enjoyed, so it doesn't really make a lot of sense. In fact, it's kind of like banning a leaf 
blower, which are designed to be used by homeowners, from being used within 500 feet of a home. That just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Well, banning sex within marriage is not biblical teaching. It's not God's design. It is an overreaction based on a negative impression. And that's what we're going to see this morning when we delve into this passage. 1 Corinthians 7, 1-9 talks about biblical sexuality and it talks about it in a positive light. And the truth is, sexuality within marriage between one man and one woman is all positive. God commands husbands and wives to engage in regular sexual relations. And in fact, sexuality within marriage, among other things, acts as an ally to combat sexual immorality. That's one of the benefits of sexuality as God designed it. So let's look at this passage. It's nine verses. This is where the Bible talks about sexuality within marriage. So we're going to read 1 through 9 of chapter 7. Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except, perhaps, by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself, as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of the other. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So far in 1 Corinthians, Paul has been responding to things that have been reported to him. If you remember back at the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 11, he says, It was reported to me by Chloe's people, meaning her family or relatives, about how the church was splitting up into these subgroups, following after teacher leaders as if they were some sort of celebrity. So that was reported to him. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, the, the incident about the man sleeping with his stepmother, that was reported to him. So those were things that he had heard and, and needed to address, not necessarily things that the church wanted to hear from him about. Uh, they were being rebuked by Paul. But now, finally here in chapter 7, it says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So Paul's now turning to things that they actually did write to him about, things that they actually did want him to respond to. And we're reminded that we're stepping into a conversation, an ongoing conversation. They, they're talking, we're seeing a part of that conversation. It had been started before 1 Corinthians, it's going to continue after 1 Corinthians. We're seeing a glimpse of the conversation. Also note in verse 1, as we kick it off, that the second half is in quotation marks. I don't know if you caught that during the reading. These quotation marks are functioning the same way that they function in chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. In other words, Paul is saying, 
I, I'm quoting back to you your position. These are your words that I'm, that I'm giving back to you. This isn't Paul's teaching. It's the position of the Corinthian church. And what is that position? Quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So here's what we seem to have. On one extreme, you've got some people in the Corinthian church that adopted this double O license to sin, and they, they thought, I, I can do whatever I want. Remember, we looked at that last week. All things are lawful for me, and they were just kind of engaging in all kinds of things that were sinful. And then on the other hand, you've got another group, it appears, that are taking the opposite viewpoint as an overreaction based on a negative view. They're saying no sexual relations at all, even within marriage. So we can kind of trace their line of thought. They may have been thinking, look, as we look around in the world and in our culture, there's all kinds of sexual immorality going on. It's just everywhere, and everybody's taking part in it. And, and a lot of that is having to do with idolatry and, and pagan temple worship, and it's just, it's something that's, that's it's all bad. It's very negative. Maybe we should just avoid it altogether. And you know what, let's, let's do that. Better safe than sorry. Let's just make a new rule, no sexual relations at all. Even, even among married. Let's just cut it all out. Let's just focus on worshiping God and let's just eliminate any kind of sexual activity at all. Well, as you can imagine, that may not have gone over very well with everyone. It may have been particular, particularly problematic for a married couple where one person kind of bought into that and the other person didn't. So Paul's responding to that. Verse 2, but, this is called an adversative, it means not that, not what I just quoted, not your view, but this. And before he gets to the this, he states the reason. He says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality. Paul acknowledges that there is strong and dangerous sexual temptation all around them. It's, it's flooded their culture. It confronts them on a daily basis. And so he says, that's the reason. Now here's the command. And he issues a command in a form of three pairs of, of sayings that, that balance out and mirror one another, each for the, for the husband and for the wife. So let's unpack that a little bit, these, these balanced couplets. First one is this. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So marriage is good. It was instituted by God in the garden, affirmed by Jesus. And marriage is between one man and one woman. And you see that his own and her own language. And this teaches us a couple things. It means, first of all, no sharing of husbands and wives. It means believers are also not to have more than one spouse at any given time. And that each person has their own spouse. This is the positive light. This is the positive view that Paul is presenting. The second couple, it says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Conjugal rights is a translation of what literally says, the duty. So, the marital duty. It could also be translated as an indebtedness, or what is due, or an obligation, or a sum owed. In fact, this word is often used when describing the payment of financial debts. So that's the... the semantic meaning behind this, this phrase, and it means that the husband and wife are indebted to one another sexually. Remember, Paul is using this teaching to address this, this idea that there should be abstinence within marriage. He's saying, no, 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 no. 
quite the opposite. It's something that's owed. So this is the Bible's way of saying, look, sexuality within marriage is not something like uh, if you want to type of thing, but it's part of a biblical marriage. It's something that the husband and wife owe each other. Now, we need to make sure we understand how we take that. This is a something that needs to be selfless and not self-centered. So when we use the word indebtedness and the word owe, it's not one partner saying, you owe me this. It's a, both partners saying, I owe you this. It's not one partner saying, I'm going to take what's mine. It's both partners saying, I want to give what is rightfully yours. And there is a big difference between those two attitudes. Okay, So it's not a you owe me, it's I owe you. It's not a I'm going to take from you, it's I want to give to you. Huge, huge difference. The focus is not on the self, but on the spouse. And then finally, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So this is saying each marriage partner does not have authority over their own body in this context. There are some translations that don't do us any favors, and one of them is, is the NIV. Look at this translation. It says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband, in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now this is really unfortunate, because the word yields is not in the text. It's not in the original manuscript. In, in the Greek manuscripts of, of, of 1 Corinthians, yields is not there. In other words, that's been inserted. And that's, that's actually tragic because it doesn't belong there. The yields makes it sound like something that's a, that it's a choice or that's something that someone does. It, it's kind of like this. Um, my authority that I have over my body, I choose to yield. Do you see the difference there? The focus is still on the self. That Paul saying, that's not it. It's not a choice. It's not something people do. It's just simply something that is. If we look at the ESV translation, it's much clearer. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So this is a truth that exists. It's not something where one person has to make a choice before it uh, becomes a reality. Somebody might be raising a hand of objection right here and saying, hold on a second, Pastor Kurt. I was here last week. You said that Jesus had authority over our bodies. You remember the illustration? You said Jesus' name is on the title of our bodies. Now you're saying that spouses have authority? No, that's not what I'm saying here. Uh, when the Bible teaches that we are not our own because Jesus has bought us with his blood, we mean that Jesus has authority over our body in a totality sense, in a global sense, in, a, in an all-encompassing sense. We belong to Christ. That's why he has authority over our bodies. What this is saying, in the context of sexual relations, Paul is using this word authority to ensure that both spouses know that they belong to each other and that they don't have the authority to withhold themselves from one another. So the first part is true. Jesus' name is on the title to our bodies. But in the context of sexual relations, 
Each partner has authority, or excuse me, each partner does not have the authority to withhold. I hope we understand that difference, right? Our spouses did not die for us. Our, our spouses did not purchase us with their blood and, and accomplish our salvation. Verse 5, the theme of sexual relations within marriage is something that is owed, is continued. It says, do not deprive one another. Deprive could also be translated as to defraud or to take away something that is due or owed. Each spouse, do not deprive. It's the same word that Paul uses in chapter 6, verse 8, where Paul commanded the believers not to take one another to court. Same word. It means do not defraud, do not deprive, do not take something that, that doesn't belong to you. In this context, it means do not withhold something that rightfully belongs to the other person. And then the rest of verse 5, it says, except, perhaps, by agreement for a limited time, you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So this is Paul's way of saying, the only scenario in which I could ever possibly imagine a husband and wife not engaging in, in regular sexual relations is this. And he's saying, and you don't have to do this, but I guess, perhaps, if you both agree for a limited time, for intense prayer, but then immediately come together again so that you're not tempted. He gives the same reason for this allowance and this exception that he gave at the end of verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, because of the temptation of sexual immorality. And then in verse 5, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And we'll come back to that when we get to the application. But that's his reason or grounds for this allowance. This is important. Verse 6 goes with verse 5, not verse 7. Verse 6 goes with verse 5. That's what it's that's what it's modifying, that's what it's referring to, not verse 7. So when we see that, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. That's still talking about what he just said. That idea that you temporarily come apart, that, that's the concession. That's the allowance of, the NIV says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. Uh, NASB says, but I say this by way of concession, not a command. And I know that if you've got an ESV, you've got a paragraph break there, so it makes it seem like it doesn't belong there. Not all translations have a paragraph break there. Once again, this is a, this is a decision made by the translators. I don't think it belongs here. It, it belongs like others, such as the NIV, does not have that break to show that, that that verse goes with the one before it. So he's saying it's a concession. Couples are allowed by agreement for a limited time to decide to abstain, but that's it. And it, it's like he's saying, look, you don't have to do this. In fact, you could go your entire married life and never take this kind of agreed limited time break, and that would be fine. But it's an allowance. Verse 7, this is his final thought before commenting on unmarried and widowed. He said, I wish that all were as I myself am. What does he mean there? Is he talking about his singleness? No. He's talking about having the gift of celibacy from the Holy Spirit, which results in a lot of things, including undivided interests, which he'll address later in chapter 7. But he's talking about having the gift of celibacy from the Holy Spirit. He's not saying that he wished everyone was single because singleness is better than being married. That's not what he's saying. There, there is a 
uh, erroneous belief that sometimes pops up within conservative churches that says that singleness is more spiritual than, than being married. And it goes something like this. The, the single, very spiritual person kind of walks out with a little bit of a swagger and says, well, you know, I'm, I'm completely free to serve Christ. I am unhindered. I don't have a spouse and children, and I can just pull up ten stakes and go wherever he wants me to go. Okay, that, that's great, but that's not what Paul's saying, and that's not what the Bible teaches. Singleness is not superior. It's not make you a super Christian, where married people are just kind of regular Christians. It's not a two-tiered Christianity. So that's, that's not what he's saying. Look what he says immediately after he says, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of the other. He's talking about spiritual gifts. And he's talking about the spiritual gift of celibacy. Now, not everyone has that gift. And that's actually a good thing. How would having uh, everyone having the same spiritual gift build up the body and contribute to the, the well-being of the whole body? It wouldn't. And God hasn't done that. And he never will. For one thing, think about this. If everyone had the gift of celibacy and no one married, where would the next generation of the church be? It would not come from children because no one would be having them. So it's the gift of celibacy. It is rare. The vast majority of Christians do not have this gift. And remember, it's a gift, not a vow. A spiritual gift from God. This particular spiritual gift is a, is a gift that allows someone to, to not burn with passion, to not be consumed with not lust, to not be, be thinking about that, to not have that level of, of drive and desire so that they are free to be single without that hindrance. A vow, a, a vow of celibacy is someone that says, no, I've got all these drives, but through sheer willpower, I'm just going to decide I'm not going to give in to them. In fact, I promise you, from now on, I am not going to act on any of these desires. Well, how long is that going to last? Probably not very long. Paul acknowledges the, the strength of the power of sexual temptation. And unless you have the gift of celibacy, it's not going to work out well. So to paraphrase Paul in this little section, he'd be saying it would be much simpler if everyone had the gift of celibacy. But I know that's not how it work, the way it works. And everyone has their own spiritual gift, one of one kind and one of the other. God gave the Apostle Paul the gift of celibacy because God was calling him to a very unique apostolic mission. And God knew that Paul would have to have all of him in order to complete the message. In other words, God knew that it was going to take all of Paul's time, all of Paul's energy, all of Paul's interests, all of Paul's everything to complete the mission. So God told him, no wife and kids. Not for you. Not for this mission. And he gave him the gift of celibacy. Now we're looking at the currently unmarried. Verses 8 and 9. Paul speaks to those who are, who are not married, either single or widows. Uh, he says, if you have the spiritual gift of celibacy, then stay like me. But if they cannot exercise self-control, meaning if they don't have the gift of celibacy, then get married. Why? Same reason as he cited in verse 2 and in verse 5. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So he's saying it would be much better for you to, to marry and enjoy sexual relations within marriage with your spouse than have you constantly fighting and losing to sexual temptation. Paul doesn't want anyone walking around in a constant state 
of extreme lust. And that's what burn with passion it means. It means they just can't control themselves. In fact, if someone's burning with passion, that's a clear sign that you have not been given the gift of spiritual, uh, spiritual gift of celibacy. So he counsels them to get married. Well, this is sexuality in a positive light. If we were to summarize these nine verses, we'd say, contrary to what some of the believers in Corinth were promoting, Paul writes that husbands and wives should be engaging in regular sexual relations. Paul commands husbands and wives, do not deprive one another. Only on rare occasions and under specific circumstances is it allowable for husbands and wives to temporarily abstain from sexual relations within marriage. Paul acknowledges that temptation towards sexual immorality is strong and dangerous for those without a marriage partner. Therefore, while it is good for those who have been given the spiritual gift of celibacy to remain single, for the vast majority of people who have not been given that gift, Paul says, quote, they should marry. End quote. So this message was positive news for the believers in Corinth who are facing not only all kinds of temptation from the culture all around them, but now also within the church, people coming at them saying, you need to abstain from sexual relations even within marriage. They were getting all kinds of negative messages, so they desperately needed some positive biblical teaching. Teaching. And in the same way, today we are flooded with counterfeits and, and lies and distortions and perversions on this topic. Our culture is saturated with sexuality, and not the good kind. It's saturated with sexual immorality. We need to see clear and pure teaching and the positive light that the Bible shines on this subject. So when we examine this topic in these nine verses, we're going to see that and I hope we understand this, Paul is not addressing, addressing everything there is to address about biblical sexuality. Instead, he focuses in and zeroes in on two highlights, two points. And we're going to focus on those with our application. First, number one, he corrects the wrong thinking, the wrong teaching that married couples should practice celibacy and says this, husbands and wives should be practicing ongoing sexual relations. Now, that's pretty straightforward. There's no need to get into details on that. Uh, this is great when both husband and wife are on the same page. This, this works out fantastic. But there are some times when married couples are not on the same page. Sometimes, for whatever reason, uh, husbands and wives have unequal drives. And we need to recognize that that's a problem. Um, remember, sexuality isn't dirty. It's private. That's why we don't talk about it. But we're talking about this topic here because the Bible's talking about it. When a husband and wife have unequal drives and it's ignored, it can easily end in marital unfaithfulness and divorce. This is one of the reasons why Paul brings this clear teaching. Um, it, it happens. I've seen it happen. Um, we've heard the phrase, a thirsty horse finds water. That's, that's kind of how it works. If you've got a husband and wife and one person's way over here on the extreme end with a very high drive and one person is on a low drive, um, eventually something has to give, especially if it's ignored and not addressed, even among professing Christians. And also, it's not just one-sided. It could be the husband that has the high drive or it could be the wife that has the high drive. I've seen it happen in, in both cases and it's not pretty and it ends in divorce. So the first thing to do is acknowledge it and address it, not just ignore it and not talk about it. 
The second thing is to start here, have each marriage partner go to Scripture and say, this is what God commands. This is God's teaching on sexuality within marriage. And then make sure each partner understands what's being taught in this passage. And I can't emphasize this enough. Make sure you understand what that oh and indebtedness language means. It's not the self. It's not you owe me. It's I owe you. And it's not I'm going to take because it's my right. It's I want to give because this is what scripture says. And finally, pray and ask God to allow you to arrive at a mutually agreeable plan. And also keep this in mind. If someone happens to be here today and find themselves in that situation, for a husband and wife, sex is not a distraction from living out a godly life. For a husband and wife, it is an essential part of what it means to live out a godly life in marriage. So keep that in mind. It's not something, it's not dirty, it's private. And it's not something that distracts us and, and takes our focus off. It's part of what it means to live out our lives in Christ. So the main point, number one, is Paul correcting that false teaching and saying, no, 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 um, that makes about as much sense as banning a leaf blower from homeowner's use. Uh, this, this is where sexuality belongs. It belongs in the marriage. It should be there. Number two, by God's design, ongoing sexual relations within marriage makes it easier to resist sexual temptation. This is a huge positive. We, 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 can't, uh, we can't ignore what Scripture is saying. Look at what Paul comes back to repeatedly in this passage. Three times. He comes back. First of all, let's, let's look at what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, um, you need to practice this in marriage because the two will enjoy closer physical and spiritual intimacy. Although that's true. He doesn't say you need to do this so the two will be fruitful and multiply and raise godly children. Although that is also true. And he doesn't supply any other reason. Look at the reason he does supply three times. To avoid wandering into sexual temptation and giving into sexual immorality. That's the reason that is backed up three times in this passage. This is one of the things that we have to appreciate about God and God's word. God does not ignore this. God does not pretend like this doesn't exist. The Bible acknowledges sexual drives are strong and sexual temptation is strong, dangerous, and very real. There was a, a show recently that was trying to illustrate how different animals can, can navigate obstacles. And they took a cat and a dog. And what they did was they had this long hallway, and in the middle of the hallway they set up several dominoes, several rows of them. At first they released the cat, and they put the food on the other side or something, and the cat walked up to it and, and just kind of gingerly stepped through the, the dominoes. The cat got all the way through and maybe knocked down one or two. It's because cats have this incredible sense of, of body awareness. They know exactly where their feet are going. And then they took a dog, and they put the dog on this end, and the food over there, and the dog kind of came up and looked at it and, and just decided to trot right through. No, he didn't do as well as the cat. He, he knocked probably 13 or 15 over. And then finally, they, they put a turtle down, and the turtle just bulldozed its way through and knocked them all down. Didn't, didn't care. For a husband and wife who are living out the, these biblical principles and are engaging in regular, mutually agreed upon sexual relations, that's going to be like the cat. They're going to be able to avoid 
sexual temptation much, much better than a husband and wife who have unaddressed, unequal drives, who are on different pages, who don't adhere to this, they're going to be more like the dog. Whoever's missing out is going to be much more at risk to knock over or to run into sexual temptation as it's placed before them. God wants us to understand this passage, and he has put this in place. He's given us this good gift of sexuality for a lot of other reasons, but one of the reasons that Paul mentions three times is to avoid falling to sexual temptation. Look, sexuality is huge in our culture, and it's a huge temptation. Satan loves to kill and destroy. He loves to destroy marriages, and one of the main ways he attacks marriages is through this route. It's through sexual temptation. So the Bible acknowledges it, and it addresses it, and it shares what we're to do in a positive light. Marriage is much more than sexuality. But it's also, sexuality is part of a marriage, and we can't ignore it. Finally, what about old scars? Maybe you're sitting here this morning, and you're saying, well, that sounds fine and great, Pastor. That sounds all wonderful, um, but that's not been my experience. What if you're here this morning, and you're saying, you know what, I have just too many negative experiences in my past, Um, And that that could very well be. Maybe you've had a negative premarital sexual experience. Maybe maybe you've had a negative experience with a former spouse or with your current spouse. Or maybe you've been the victim of a sexual crime, either as a child or as an adult. These things happen and they're very real. Negative experiences make it more difficult to see sexuality in a positive light. Well, believe it or not, there is a type of correspondence between our salvation and biblical sexuality. Consider this. When it comes to our salvation, we all have different stories. We all have different backgrounds. Some people have a very dramatic conversion experience. Some people can say, look, I was was on this uh, terrible path. I was headed in the wrong direction. I was involved in this and this and this, and I was just overwhelmed that somebody took me to a revival meeting and I heard this this fiery preacher and I got convicted. I was saved in one night. My life turned around. And from then on, everything changed. That's a dramatic conversion experience. Other people don't have that story. And that's okay. Some people say, I was raised in the church. And from a very young age, all I can remember is growing up, being taught the, the forgiveness of sins of Jesus. And I can't point to a time or date. I just know that at some point I was quietly converted as I was sitting in a pew, Sunday after Sunday. And then there's everything in between. Maybe you've had atheist parents. Maybe maybe you were part of a cult. The point is this. God calls us from different backgrounds. We all have different starting points. But he calls us to the same Savior. He calls us through the same Gospel. He calls us through the powerful proclamation of his word or the reading of his word and the Holy Spirit accompanying that proclamation or reading of his word with conviction and and a a regenerating work on our hearts so that we become alive to scripture and we recognize our need for a savior. That's how God calls everyone. And he promises to forgive the sin of everyone who turns to him in faith. He promises to credit the righteousness of Christ to us So that when God sees us, he doesn't see our sinful record. He sees the righteous record of Jesus. And he promises to 
bring us into his kingdom and see us all the way through. That's, that's how we all are called. And once saved, we're called to the same gospel. We're called to participate in the same church, the body of Christ, the same mission, no matter what kind of past we've had. We're called to the same Savior, Jesus. We're called to the same mission, make disciples. We're called to read the same word in Scripture. So likewise, we all have different sexual histories. Some good, some bad. Some loving, some not loving. Some with multiple negative experiences. And then there's some people who have managed to go through life without really any type of negative experience. They're all different. But we're called to the same place. No matter where we've been, this is where God shows us to go. This is what God has called us to. Mutual, ongoing sexual relations with marriage or single with the gift of celibacy. Now please hear me. Not everybody is going to fit neatly into one of these two categories. So maybe you're single without the gift of celibacy and you want to marry but you haven't found the right person yet. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're recently divorced. Maybe you're widowed. Maybe you're still in high school or college and you're thinking, what, I have to get married right away? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. Some may have to wait a long time before taking the next step. My point is that there are going to be times and maybe even seasons in our lives where as believers we we don't neatly fit into one of these two categories identified in verses 1 through 9. And we understand all that. What I am saying is that this is where God shows us to go. No matter what our pasts are, this is what he calls us to. Each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband, or single with the spiritual gift of celibacy. That's where we're called. God wants us to see sexuality in a positive light. It is a good gift from God to be celebrated and enjoyed within the covenant of marriage. Regular sexual relations within marriage are an essential part of what it means for a husband and wife to live out a godly life together. And singleness with the spiritual gift of celibacy is God-honoring. In a world that is fixated on negative sexual immorality, the church needs to see and joyfully practice sexuality within the positive light of Scripture's commands. Amen. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word and we give you praise for all of your word. Uh, We know this is a sensitive subject and uh, but we know the world sure isn't silent on it and uh, we're thankful that your word is not silent on it either. Father, help us to, in a God-honoring way, um, look at this topic and seek to to apply it and, and live biblical lives in light of your truth. And Father, allow us as, as parents to, to teach our next generation of, of children what biblical sexuality looks like because they're going to hear a lot of different messages. They need to hear the truth. So Father, we trust you with the application of this word and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.